0: Welcome to Point South. I'm your host, Sarah A. Lewis of the Oxford American. In this episode, join us for conversation and music with OA editor Daniel A. Jackson, visual artist Clarence Hayward, and Jen Wozner of Flock of Dimes, Y. Oak, and Bonivar. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out tonight, and welcome to Point South Live. I am Danielle A. Jackson. I'm the editor-in-chief at the Oxford American Magazine. We publish a quarterly magazine, print magazine, (laughs) that features storytelling in many different forms and formats, Um, literary arts like reporting, memoir, fiction, short stories, flash fiction, poetry, and fine art, visual art. We also host live events And we're so grateful to Nell and to everyone at 21C for partnering with us to bring you the program for tonight. 21Cs, like the Oxford American, are committed to bringing exceptional art to their audiences and to forging community in the name of the arts. And we're so pleased to be in partnership. So thank y'all. So for tonight, I'm thrilled to introduce to you or to welcome two artists, local to the triangle, whose work in the sound and the visual arts connect in many exciting and thrilling ways. First, Mr. Clarence Hayward, a painter and collagist, was born and raised in the Republic of Brooklyn. (laughs) His work explores notions of the black American experience investigating cultural truths, challenging stereotypes, and questioning identity. Mr. Hayward has shown his work nationally and at venues, including the 21C Museum of Durham, the Harvey B. Gantt Center for Cultural Arts, the Black Gallery Raleigh, the Nashur Museum of Art at Duke University, and CAM, the Contemporary Art Museum of Raleigh, in addition to many others as I learned earlier. Thank you very much for being here, and please, everybody, welcome Clarence Hayward. So to start, I want to ask you, I'm going to move from our script a little bit, (laughs) to ask you about the painting that is showing here right now with us, um, Red Light, Green Light. So can you talk a little bit about Red Light, Green Light?
1: I left my speech in the green room. (laughs) 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 But I'm going to wing it. So Red Light, Green Light was born from a body of work that I'm actually currently still working on called In My Hood. It's a um, body of work based on a statement made by Geraldo Rivera, of all people. Um, After the murder of Trayvon Martin, Rondo Rivera got on his podcast and said, Trayvon wasn't killed because he was black. He was killed because he was wearing a hoodie. So I decided to make a body of work where I portray black men and boys in hoodies to kind of take away the stigma of us being threatening. But while I was building that body of work, I was playing around with different colors and textures that I wanted to use for backgrounds and I stumbled upon uh, some color theory ideas where certain colors you put together creates like a stigmatism in the eye and you actually can't see it. So I put the green with the red to play along with that and when you stare at it too long it causes like a vibration in your eyes so actually you can't see it. Also, there's a colorblindness called red-green. Colorblindness is actually the number one colorblindness in the world. So that kind of plays into the idea of being unseen or invisible. So the number one influence on my practice is Barclay Hendricks. The idea behind red light, green light kind of came from a painting he did called Sir Charles, alias Willie Harris. And that's why I got the idea for the triptych. That's also what spawned the red. And the stories are kind of similar, and that Willie Harris was is a character from the um, Raising in the Sun who ran off with all the money at the end of the movie. In that same vein, I'm playing around with the idea of being feeling, looking threatening, or looking like I might steal your money or whatever.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I um, I'm so glad that you went ahead and went into all the color theory behind your work because. And just preparing to talk to you, I got super engrossed with your study of individual colors, like across, I would say the years of your practice. So, so there's the red and the green playing off of each other. Um, there's the paintings with the gold leaf. I'm thinking about PTSD and a series of other paintings. What happens when you decide on a color to use or to explore or to put together with, with another color? Is it usually a feeling that you're trying to convey an experience for the viewer? Is it um, purely for your pleasure? Like, what do you decide? What makes? What is it that that motivates you to decide?
1: Okay, um, that's a pretty deep answer, but a lot of the color combinations come from art history and looking at studying people who came before me and I see what worked for them, so obviously it's still gonna work. But it's also playing around in the studio and seeing what feels right, what feels good. How do I feel when I look at it? And pretty much once I start laying down that background color, I'm all in. I mean, you can always change it, but I live with it in the studio for a couple days and if it works, I I stay with it.
0: You mentioned a couple of times Barclay Hendricks, so maybe talk to us. I would love to hear a little bit about his influence on your work and just like who he is in art history and why he's important and is an artist that we should all be learning and looking at all the time.
1: Okay, Barclay Hendricks is the reason that I am a painter today. Not the reason I'm an artist, but he's the reason I'm a painter. So previously, I mean, I worked in collage, I mean, in charcoal and Conte sticks and stuff like that. But I went to an exhibition at the National in 2008. It was um, Barkley Hendrick's solo exhibition, The Birth of a Cool. It was the first time that I saw life-size paintings of black people and I saw myself. And I actually never told anybody this, but one of the main reasons is So, my biological father died when I was a baby, so I never got to meet him. But when I walked into that exhibition, I saw a painting of a guy that looked just like my father, like based on pictures, and it's always stayed with me. So, I've always studied his work after that.
0: That's really, really beautiful. So that makes me want to ask you a couple things. Um, First is, I also like the variations of black masculinity in Barclay Hendrix's work. Like it's Mm -hmm. a whole wide multiplicity. And I really love that about your work also. It just Mm -hmm. honors a whole lot of emotions and tones. Even when you're painting yourself, it's like a wide variety of feelings that we just all need to realize and sit with, I think. So I'm kind of following that about the turn about your father... Um, and, like, that kind of personal influence on your work.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I noticed that in many of your paintings, you do pull from, I would say, like, the matter of your personal life. Mm -hmm. So there are many portrayals of your family, your daughters, who are lovely, uh, Miss Desiree, who's lovely. Yeah, can you maybe tell us about... You know, to me, as a person who works in the literary arts, I identify a person who's taking from their personal life to make art as, like, just a fellow, like, memoirist. Um, you're, you're crafting art out of, like, the sweat and delight, but also the tragic things, and also just, like, the everyday things of, of real life, right? So... I think sometimes, so I'm going to use the question, but sometimes sometimes, um, in the literary world, personal writing isn't as valued as, like, craft intensive as things that, like, absent the person or the subject, the artist. Um, I guess I would just love to hear why you do turn the lens on your own life to make work. Is there one piece of work that you remember it really working where it clicked for you because I mean it takes just as much work right and revising and redoing it to make something called from like raw material so yeah why do you do it and was there one piece of art where it clicked and you decided yeah I want to keep exploring this path
1: I made a lot of work of you know celebrities or pop culture things that are already out here, basically, right? You was just copying what you see. But I never felt the connection to it, right? It was almost like painting for painting's sake or just art for art's sake, which is cool. I mean, there's room for that. But, I mean, you can get tired, you can get bored. It becomes repetitive. So I kind of turned the lens on myself. I mean, as I started to grow and I'm visiting museums and I'm actually paying attention to art history, right? It's different in school. You're forced to do it, but, you know... Once I got out of school, it's kind of like, you do it because you actually want to learn. And you start looking at the work that, to me, matters. It's usually somebody talking about like, something historical that actually happened in real life, or they're documenting their story, and I always felt connected to it. And then there's the cost of like models, right? I couldn't afford any models at the time, so I started painting myself. And then you get tired of painting yourself, so I'm like, you know, I painted my wife, and then we had kids, and it's like, okay, I'm going to paint the kids. And then you start, I mean, life happens, you know, things happen, and you start documenting it, like, I always tell a story, like, oh, we had pancakes today, how can I make this an interesting painting, right? And then you paint the kids eating pancakes, and you show somebody, and they're like, oh, my God, I remember growing up eating pancakes with my parents, and you can see that people are connected so to the So it's work. a way of
0: connecting yeah. for you and then also for with us.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's way beyond connecting, right? It's, it's therapeutic, too. Like, if I'm stressed or I'm going through something, I just, I can paint myself looking angry so I don't have to walk around. Angry. Like, it's just so many different things you can do that other people relate to when they see the work. Like, oh, I remember feeling that way. I You know, I know that look, so... Yeah, and then you just start telling stories and keep going.
0: Thank you. I would love to... Would you like to hear some music, everybody? Um, I would love to bring in our second artist for the evening into the conversation and into the room. I am excited to present to you musician Jen Wozner, who releases solo projects as Flock of Dimes. In April... This year, Sub-Pop released Flock of Dimes' Head of Roses, Phantom Limb, which is a collection of tracks written around the same time as last year's full-length release, Head of Roses. Both works explore heartbreak, making the self, and through visually stunning and vivid sonic landscapes and exceptional lyricism bridge many genres and transcend them all. Everybody, Jen Wazner.
2: Hi. Hello, everyone.
3: Thank you, Danielle. Good to see y'all. It's a pleasure being here. I get so few opportunities to play my songs for folks these days, so um, it's a real treat. This one is about duality and appropriately is titled to
0: Jen Wisner, everybody. Thank you so much. That was so beautiful. I would love to start, and this is a question that's going to be for both of you, but I'd love to hear from you first, Jen. Mm-hmm. Um, so you both live, I guess, in the triangle, technically, close to here. Um, and you both came from other places, right? So you're kind of transplanted by something about... This place made you wanna stay. So I'd love to hear about what is special about this area for you and what it does and has done for your art practices. And Jen, you're from Baltimore. Clarence and you're from Brooklyn. I'd love to hear what is it, what are some things from those places, those respective places that still show up in your work? Like what did you bring from home? with you that comes out in your sound or in your visual work?
3: Well, um, I've been here since about 2015, I believe. And I'm someone who thinks in metaphor a lot. And so um, when I try and define like my time in Baltimore and what that meant to me and my practice versus my time in North Carolina, it always sort of starts to fall into these two categories of like head and heart or like mind and body. And I'm I'm from Baltimore, and like I was surrounded. There was an amazing music community in Baltimore. There was so much happening. I was um, being exposed to all these things that were that I never experienced, and I was learning all these things. And it was just sort of this like go 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 kind of uh, mentality and like way of being for me. Um, And when I moved here, a lot of my friends in Baltimore asked me why, and I didn't really know what to tell them because the only reason that I really had at the time was I went there and it felt good. Like, it was very much like a felt intuitive sense that, that brought me here to begin with. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the people that I had met. But I think a lot of it had to do with this sort of, like, loosening, this, this like, um, uh, sinking, what I later have come to sort of think about is, like, sinking into my body and, like, out of my constantly hyperactive brain. Um, and that has proven to be something that has expanded um, since I've lived here and something that I now consider to be pretty indispensable to the way I move through the world. But I'm not sure if, if I had stayed on the sort of like Baltimore hamster wheel, if I would have ever really discovered th- that way of being in the same way. So,
0: Thank you. And what... What about Baltimore is still with you, is still present even in this room as you're Honestly, making music? Honestly, I think the
3: community, the creative community, like the scene and the people making art and music there um, has definitely shaped not only my aesthetic but just sort of like the way I think about making things and um, who I want to make it for and how and why. I think that that, it was just a super formative experience. It just wasn't necessarily like a sustainable one for me. Um, I wouldn't be the same person or artist if I hadn't learned and seen and and absorbed all of that, you know, incredible stuff. But I also, I don't think it was something I could do
0: indefinitely. So do you feel like you appreciate it more a little bit at a distance?
3: Yeah, and it's also like a matter of like, a part for me a part of like becoming an artist is like but before you know what you want to be you have to understand what other people are or like what else is out there and i think like there's a time when you're just sort of absorbing all these different identities and ideas and aesthetics and it i think that that is like definitely a step one before you sort of start to centralize like like who am i that like what do i have to say like how do i want to like speak in the world and move through the world and like before I could do that, I had to sort of understand as much as I could about what other people were doing.
0: That's like Clarence talking about making all the other work of all the other celebrities and all the other artists before returning home to making the art out of his own life and experiences. So, yeah, Clarence, I would love to hear from you also about what made you come here and what made you stay.
1: Uh, what made me come here was college. I went to North Carolina Central. All right. All right. And what made me stay was the cost of living. But <laughs> so uh, coming from New York, I mean, I was a kid when I was there, technically. Um, it was great, right? Like I didn't have any responsibilities. I could run free. I didn't have a curfew. I got exposed to like tons of different people. I went to school in the city. So I had friends from everywhere. Um, But funny enough, I didn't know any professional artists.
0: You went to performing arts high school, is that right? Yes, so I went to
1: um, LaGuardia High School in Manhattan.
0: Which is the Fame High School, right?
1: Yes, but I didn't know anyone who um, was a practicing artist after school. So I knew people who went on to be singers and dancers and rappers and that kind of stuff, but nobody who was a visual artist. And it's like the art mecca of the world, and I didn't know anybody. So coming down here, I thought I would be an art teacher, and then I found out how much art teachers make. <laughs> yeah, So I became a truck driver for a while, and then you know, art started calling me again, so I came, came back to art, and now I, I probably would be better suited to move to New York, <laughs> but I tell everybody you have to be rich just to be poor there. So this is still be home based
0: And same thing, I'd love to hear from you. What about where you come from still makes it into your paintings and your other work? And what's in the room with you here that is really like some Brooklyn aesthetic or feeling?
1: Well, I don't have any Brooklyn here, but I have some Bronx here. So I brought my wife with me from New York. We, <laughs> we met in high school actually, but um, I think I brought my hustle so I'm I'm creating nonstop. Um, I'm looking for opportunities. Um, so I think I brought that back from New York, the grind, the constantly wanting more and never settling. And I'm always, I don't know, I'm just looking, searching. Yeah, it's really the creative hustle.
0: You both sort of mentioned the grind a little bit. Um, I would love to hear um, you both talk about, I guess, collaborators so this question is inspired by my like reading about jen's career across multiple projects bands collaborations um and also your creative practice clarence where you're bringing other people in but you're also thinking about the audience so that's kind of a collaboration as well so jen i, I would love to hear you just talk about how you think about creative partnership in music making And, um, when you first hear a song in your head, for example, or line, when do you know it's time to bring somebody else in and how do you make that decision of who?
3: That's a great question. Um, I'm a very relational person. I mean, anyone who knows me, I could tell you, um, I'm a people person, um, but, strangely ironically like a lot of my writing process starts like i always try and start from this place of like essentially locking myself in a room and like beating my head against the wall being like this is going to work like every time this is going to work definitely this is how art happens and um i think that is a part of myself that i'm working to both make peace with and maybe quiet down a little bit because the reality is when you are in relation with another person creatively, um, it's so much easier to be inspired. Like, it's so much easier to react to something that someone is offering than it is to try and conjure something from nothing. So sometimes it's just as simple as having the, like, guts to get in a room with someone and make yourself vulnerable. Um, But at that point, you know, the ideas are just sort of right in front of you. But I, I feel like it's so hard for me to hold on to that Because I I so often just jump straight into, like, well, once you have something that's ready for other people to see. But really, you have to, like, get around that perfectionist mindset and bring people in beforehand because that's, you know,
0: where the ideas start to generate. So does this start with you kind of saying... I'd love to hear what you think. I mean, is that kind of... A- or just, I am desperate. Like, I, I have been sitting
3: in this room by myself. I am tired of my thoughts. Like, I'm tired of this hearing the same sounds that only I make over and over again. And, like, let's... Oh, right. Like, I'm supposed to be, like, in relationship. I'm supposed to be, like, in conversation. And really, I'm just, like, trying to have the same conversation with myself over and over again. And just being surprised that that doesn't take me somewhere yet
0: again. <laughs> Thank you. How about you, Clarence? How do you know when it's time to let somebody see the work, um, collaborate when it's time maybe to paint somebody else, like you said earlier? When is the time to open up a little bit?
1: Um, Well, painting somebody else, it really depends on the project, right? So my my work is narrative, so depending on what story I'm trying to tell, um, that kind of dictates what characters I'm going to need in the work. Um, as far as letting people see the work, I have studio visits weekly, so people always see the work. and I might not collaborate like physically, but it's more like conversational. I bring people in and talk about the work.
0: Do you make changes based on those conversations, like if somebody comes for a studio visit and notices something and you like or don't like?
1: of the time, no. But I like to see what people are thinking when they look at my work, right? So I had a studio visit last week and one of the comments was there was something in my work that could be a barrier. I'm still going to keep the painting the same way it is, but I still like to get another perspective on what it is. It's just a barrier for that person, so they won't be collecting the work, but... Someone
0: else. (laughs) Yeah, I mean... I love, I mean, that makes me think about how everything isn't really for everybody. Like, you have different audiences, probably. So, yeah, I mean, before, I would love to hear both of you talk about who you're making work for. So, who are you singing to? (laughs) Who are you writing to? Who are you painting for?
3: I love this question. Thank you for asking this question. Because this is actually, like, a huge turning point in my life and career where I was asking myself this question in a way that... I think it's been really pivotal but when I was so in 2011 2012 my band wyoke put out a record and it sort of like had its little zeitgeist moment um I was playing like 200 shows a year with my bandmate Andy Stack and like we were just grinding um and I was you know I had I had accomplished the thing that I had set out to do in many ways and I was the most miserable I had ever been and The crowds got bigger, but the energy was off for some reason. And it occurred to me in that moment, I was like, okay, um, maybe it's not just a matter of bigger, better, more. But maybe it's a matter of, like, who do you want to connect with? I noticed that, like, a lot of bands or projects, as they got bigger, they kind of played by some rules about okay, well, we're going to curate our sets so that we're always playing our most popular song and it's always going to be right at the end and it's always going to be this way and this is what people expect. And, um, you know, I think that that is essentially being a good entertainer, right? Which is like a different thing for being an artist. It's a real skill, but it's a separate skill. And I think at that moment I was like, oh, maybe the thing that I want to be is actually something else. And maybe... I need to be more intentional about who I am making things for. And like, as you make work for a larger audience, um, just, it's just like a sheer numbers game. It's like, I wanted to make work for people who think about music the way I do and relate to it in the way that I do. I would obviously hope as many people could enjoy it as possible. I don't want it to be exclusionary or alienating, Um, but I don't want to go into the field being like, I want to, just make the lowest hanging fruit I can make for whoever. Like, I want to put work in, and my hope is that people who think about music, like, critically and feel it very deeply, like I do, will notice, even if I'm not necessarily the best at always being, like, an entertainer. Mm
0: -hmm. And do you think about different folks per, like, for different projects, like, is your most recent album for a specific group of these people who are like-minded, whereas, like, other, like, side projects, like the cover, Beverly and Glenn Copeland cover, um, is that for a different audience? Like, are you thinking about different groups of folks?
3: I try pretty hard to not, to abide by this rule, because I think you can get so lost in trying to think about what people want from you that it can kind of sink the ship before it even has a chance. So, um, I... Try and abide by the rule of, if I connect with this, somebody else will too. It's like the personal litmus test. And it, it requires you to be really honest with yourself, I think, about like what's actually working for you and what isn't. You know, I mean, obviously making a record like Head of Roses is like, well, I'm going through an experience of heartbreak and loneliness. So in a lot of ways, this record, I hope, will connect with people who have experienced or, or who are experiencing the same thing. Like everybody, basically. Which is everybody. (laughs) yeah, Everyone, everywhere, all the time. One of the reasons I like songs as a medium is because part of the deal is that you leave space. Like, you leave space for other people to draw themselves into the picture. Um, And I do that with the things that I like. I have no idea what some of my favorite songwriters were thinking about when they wrote their lyrics. The ambiguity of it allows me to, like, exist inside of it, personally.
0: To bring their own imagination. yeah into the experience. How about you, Clarence? Who are you making work for? Who's your ideal viewer?
1: I got this answer.
4: <laughs>
1: no. Yes. Actually, somebody asked me this last week, and the answer was kind of cheesy, but it's the truth, right? Um, and it's actually a little problematic, but um, <laughs> the answer is I'm making work for my grandchildren, and it's problematic because I'm kind of forcing kids on my kids, but... <laughs> But this is my world, right? So, I'm kind of, I'm making it to work for my grandchildren because one, it keeps me going, right? That's a long time from now, right? And two, it gives me something to look forward to, and that I want to be able to go to a museum, take my grandchildren to museums, and say, like, this is us, right? My grandfather was a fisherman. I didn't go fishing until last year, right? So I don't know what it was like She's to. He was
0: a fisherman in Brooklyn.
1: No, he was in South Carolina. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know anything about his story or anything about that kind of history, whereas I'm painting stories that are related to my life. So when I tell my grandchildren, I can explain, like, this is what me and your grandmother were doing, or this is how it was in this time. I'm documenting history, too. So I would love to just walk through a museum with my grandchildren or, like, my retrospective when it comes. Knock on wood.
0: It's coming.
1: And, right? and um.
0: It's coming. I, I love that both of you are talking about, I guess, honesty, transparency, and I think that's what we're connecting to. Aside from, like, your work is, looks beautiful, your voice sounds beautiful, we're also connecting to something honest that's coming from your heart. So, um, love to hear some more music, Jen.
3: I'd love to play it for you, thank you.
0: Thank you. Wow. Um, this next song is about, um, it's
3: called Lightning. And it's, uh, I can remember very vividly. Like a lot of the time when I write songs, I can't remember anything about, I go into like a fugue state and I just can't like remember anything. But this one I remember very vividly. It was about this time actually of year, this uh, sort of late summer, hazy time of North Carolina summer. And um, the sky was green in the way that it can threaten to be. Um, There was just like a creepy storm brewing. And... um, I was sitting looking out my window in my living room and I put this song together kind of out of nowhere. And I think of this time of year every time I play it. Mm
2: It isn't
0: Thank you, guys. Thank you, Jen and Alan. Thank you to Clarence. thank you to everybody gathered here tonight. Thank you for joining us. Please, another round of applause for Clarence, Jen, and Alan. So I want to give a special thank you to 21C for hosting this event and for creating a space for conversations like these to happen. This is like a article in the magazine come to life and I just really appreciate from my bottom of my heart. As a nonprofit, we are only able to present freely to the public thanks to the generosity of folks like 21C and folks like you. I do hope you'll consider if you're able making a donation to the OA um, think about what a ticket for a program like this in an intimate space like this could cost, and if you can head to oxfordamerican.org/backslash/donate to give. We would also love for you to subscribe to the magazine four times a year. An art exhibition in your mailbox, so it could be better. Thank y'all. Have a good night. Be safe. This event was produced with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and 21C Durham Museum and Hotel. The episode was produced by me, Christian Brown, and Christian Lewis. Post production by Spacebomb. Special thanks to Clarence Hayward, Jen Wozner, and Danielle Jackson.